This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Hello, this is Jonathan Ross. Thank you so much for downloading the Radio 2 Art Show podcast. I hope you enjoy the listening. I often think about it's like Mark Armand, who's here with me right now. Mark, it's great nice to see you. Nice to see you, Jonathan. I'm assuming you were a big Roxy music fan back oh, in the day. Well, well, that goes without saying, as of doesn't course. it, really? Of course. But but in the Eno days, mostly. Of course. Of course. But in this, but Stranded was great too, and Country Life was good, I think. But maybe maybe even some of our... Um, Aval- not Avalon. What was the one before? There was Jerry Hall on the cover. Love is the drug. Siren. That, that siren, yeah. That, that was good as well. Well, you see, that was the first phase of Roxy. And then yeah. they went away for a while, and he yeah. constantly solo crew. And when he came back, it was that kind of... Uh, softer, more AOR kind of sound, wasn't it? It was. I was never a fan of um, Avalon, really. It was all too mm. a bit... I mean, I've kind of rediscovered it, actually, smooth. over recent time. A bit smooth at the time. I've rediscovered it, because, of course, your tastes get a bit mellow. But that was kind older. of when you were at your most abrasive. Yes. Wasn't it? Because you started with soft cell, and that was never smooth. Yeah. But then your solo work, you cut, let's face it, you went a bit nuts. Well, I kind of went nuts. Mm-hmm. I, kind of, I suppose so. Come I, on. I, I did. I kind of went a bit eclectic, yep. although I, a bit all, all over the place. But I, I was kind of excited about music at that time. I, I loved to try lots of different things. I and... loved what you were doing because I had no idea what was going to come next. You know, it was just. I like, didn't either. I had no idea what you were going to look I like. I had no idea what I was going to look like. What you were going to sound like. I just I didn't. Who you were going to sing with. You know what? I didn't plan anything. I didn't kind of make any kind of plans for that. This, that, this, that, is, this is my kind that of was plan of operation. You know, I'm, I'm going to do. I just, I just kind of went with, with things. As I was very organic, yeah. as they say. Well, it was amazing. Things, what I felt, what I was influenced by at the time, movies I was watching at the time, how I felt. I was always felt I had my kind of finger on what was styles and things that were happening and, thing, and things like that, and kind of moved with that, but in my own kind of world and territory. But what I find amazing is is that it's very rare that an artist uh, enjoys the success you did enjoy and then doesn't carry on down that path and does to an extent, throw away that and challenge their audience in a way which is obviously something that you needed to do for yourself, I guess. I kind of realised that to to be an artist to kind of last years in in, in this business, you have to kind of commit commercial suicide at times and you have to kind of take risks and do things that are not necessarily your fans are all going to like but you've got to kind of take your fans on this kind of ride you know and this of ups and downs and things and take them to musical places that they've not been before introduce them like Bowie say introduced me to Velvet Underground and Iggy and all these people I never knew existed mm. um, Jacques Brel for example yeah. you've got to take your audience with you on this kind of fairground ride of ups and downs and on an adventure and that's all music has really been to me it's been like this adventure that I go on and if it's commercial fantastic if it's a success brilliant if it's not well I've got something out of it if it's a huge failure I love grand follies you know uh, as well that can either be fantastic or a total disaster but you've got to go on it I don't want to talk in cliches here but but it, it often strikes me that uh, people learn more from their failures than their successes yeah it, it, it's true it's true really and I think you've got to take that you know not everything I can look back on I mean I did my box set recently and Trials of Eyeliner was just t- 10 discs of all of all my work and it, it was a great because I looked looked on that and I kind of thought it gave me a sense of everywhere where I'd been and I've been to Russia I've worked with this producer and that producer and been to America and recorded there. So it was a great... I thought, well, I've not done so badly, actually, in the mm. adventure that is my is my career. And my fans have, have come along with me for the bumpy ride. Um, you, you don't live in London anymore, do you? Which is, I find strange because... I do, actually, Jonathan, oh, you yeah. I, I, I do live in London. I've lived... I lived, I lived, I lived in Moscow for a little while yeah. and I was recording there. I, I've lived and travelled around places. I don't do that so much anymore. I kind of find London is, is a good base. Though I have to tell you that... I am getting a little bit upset with it at the moment. Right, I'm kind no. of falling a bit out of love with a long affair that I've had with London. I realised the other day, I don't know whether I love London like I used to. Well, it isn't the same London. 
It's not. I mean, Soho, when you were, when you recorded with Soft Cell, what was it? Was it a non-stop erotic cabaret? Was it it was called? non-stop erotic, erotic cabaret. And then Soho was, it was sleazy, but in a way which many have found kind of like delightful, even if you weren't actually engaging in the sleaze on yeah. offer. Certainly to be there, that milieu was an exciting place to be. Rather like New York used to be around 42nd Street, and now it's been, as, as we know, sort of Disney-fied. I think, I think what Soho has always been, and we'll talk about it in my, in my treasures and things, but there's something about that, but, but also um, it, it's been this place of this cult kind of melting pot of all kinds of things that you want to be part of its history when I before I came to London I thought Soho was London mm. that was it it was all all like that I'd watched the 60s films you know um, the world ten times over okay, hold on a second. world of Sammy Lee you and know. did you watch uh, Smashing Time Smashing Time yeah <laughs> Smashing Time Beat Girl and, yeah, I, and I kind of yeah. thought that was what all of London was like. I wanted to go there. I wanted to be part of that and be and have this part of this thing that was Soho. It was like a dangerous, mm. exciting, exotic place full of strippers and you which know, it was though to an extent. I mean, yeah. you could walk through Soho at night and there'd be a doorway and it might lead to an underground bar. It yeah. might lead to an upstairs kind of gambling yeah. den and yeah. there were Chinese restaurants that were only yeah. the only place you could drink twenty four hours. And it was it was kind of vibrant in a very different way. It's no less vibrant now, I suppose, but but very much more kind of commercially driven. And more kind of like uh, it's not counterculture anymore. Well, it is, I, th- I think, and, it, and it's, and it's I, I, as, a, as a place of, with a, such a cultural history, it is in a, quite a bit of a danger at the, the, the moment. I, d- I did a film recently that was directed by Kevin Godley called Soho Is, featuring Stephen Fry and Tim Arnold, the Soho Hobo, Jules Holland, Robert Elms, lots of different people saying so, who had been connected with Soho. And I think you really realised June Brown was in it. It was all these people that have had this cultural connection mm. to Soho that it's meant something to them part of their their life and part of their influence and things so it's a shame if it gets if they build this huge kind of like tube station which they're going to pull the curtains cinema down yeah you know what it. i feel that's a shame also but i wonder whether that's just because we're older people and we resent change yeah, and whether or not right. just the focus will move elsewhere it will move to another part of either yeah. the city or another city and there will be a vibrant crowd because you never find the exciting art being produced in the place yeah. where the rent is the highest, do you? No, and, and I, think, I think you're very right. I think it's very easy to get very sentimental about cities. And sometimes you have to accept, accept that that was our time and mm. that was our city, that was our London, and that's moved on now for other people. For other people, it's a different London. Mm. So is a, so a place of restaurants and it's very much a food place at the moment, I think, in its yeah. current phase. Yeah, it is. And, and I think you have to kind of accept that, that cities are kind of amorphous and always kind of... Are changing and always developing, and, um, and we lose like, like lots of things when we get older. We lose lots of ourselves in, lo- in lots of in lots of things. Musicians we love die, um, actors that we've loved die. You know, f- films pass by and get and get forgotten. Well, Cities change. I'm sure that. In the Soho, even of today, there are little traces of your DNA under various bits of the pavement, as <laughs> really? indeed there are mine, Mark. Really, really Jonathan? <laughs> you know, we, we've left a trail. No, no, we all do as humans. But you've left a, you've left a, a I'm trail. sure you've, you've left a bigger trail like a, than most. Like a snail. Yeah. <laughs> I think one day, who knows, one day scientists might yes. have a way of just tracking someone's DNA and following it around following with it. like a kind of one of those lights and say, well, Mark was here, there's an evening. With an ultraviolet light. 1982, he spent quite a lot time and expended quite a lot of well, bodily fluid in this space. Well, yeah. you, mean, you mean sweat and tears. That's exactly I, I, I what really, I meant. Exactly. Well, my very first flat, when I came to London, my first flat was, was, was in Brewer Street. 
and that's the first flat I bought with my first royalties from Tainted Love was in Brewer Street, overlooking the Raymond's Review Bar, because oh, wow. with the neons coming through... Hey, what an incredible view. I could see the windows view. and see the girls getting their pasties on. Well, there used to on. be girls in the other window, the working ladies, yeah, yeah. they used to be euphemistic. Yeah. And they, they would... Because I remember once walking down there with Danny Baker, and one of them shouted yeah. something out, which I can't possibly repeat on yeah, the radio, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I'm going to enjoy telling you when the music's on. Yeah, OK. <laughs> We'll talk about that while everyone enjoys you yep. performing with Susie Sue, the great Susie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is Threat of Love. Yeah. Mark Armand there with the great Susie Sue. You're still in touch with Susie? You must see her, okay? From, from time to time, I think we were saying, last, I think last time I saw Susie, I think she's moved back to, to London now. And last time we, we saw it was at the Hannibal um, uh, launch. The, the great ha- TV show. Hannibal yeah. season three, yes. But she was living in France for a while. She wasn't was she, living in France. Now I think she, she's back in, um, in, in London now. I actually wanted to ask her to do um, a 20th century boy on my, on my Mark Boland show that I'm doing in, in September. So you're doing a, What's this Boland show? It, we're doing a Boland sort of commemorative. It's 40 years since the death of, of, of Mark Boland. And we're doing a big show at the Shepherd's Bush Empire with Tony Visconti. Holly Johnson's taking part. Various people have had a, a, a who've been influenced by T Rex or had done a T Rex song. Susie, of course, did Twentieth Century Boy in the days of the Banshees. Yeah. I would love Susie to come and do Twentieth Century Boy. It's interesting because Boland was one of the few artists from that kind of uh, previous wave of uh, pop success that embraced punk and the new wave. Yeah. Quite wholeheartedly. And the Damned, of course, supported supported yeah. him. He, he, uh, Billy Idol on on his show, he introduced Generation X and said, "Here's someone, here's someone that's actually prettier than I am." <laughs> <laughs> so, so on the on the Mark show, so so yeah, so we'd love so that's, that's a celebration show we're doing on the seventeenth of September later okay. later this year. Pop quiz for you before we go into your bird treasure. Okay, pop quiz. Got to answer quickly and honestly. Okay, yeah. first thought comes to your head: Buzzcocks or Generation X? Uh, Buzzcocks. Bowie or Lou Reed? I've got to go with Bowie because Bowie made me a better person and I wouldn't have known about Lou Reed if it wasn't for Bowie. Iggy or Mark Boland? Mark Boland. Wow, straight in there. I have to go in there, yeah. Dusty Springfield or Silla Black? Dusty. Obviously, you were going to say Dusty. Dusty. But, but having, having said that, I love Scylla too. Scylla, so people forget that Scylla was a great singer and did some great ballads well, back in the 60s. I know. Uh, I only got turned on to them by Marcy because yeah. when, when she died, sadly she died last year, of course, uh, he, he recommended one song to me and it was amazing. Yeah, was well, amazing. Scylla was fantastic. She was a fantastic singer, but I think I'd have to pick with Dusty because Dusty stuck with singing all her life and, and Scylla did That voice yeah. was uh, exceptional. I was going to yeah. do one more for you now, but I've almost forgotten what it was. What was I, I was going to do one more. Okay, I'll, I'm, <laughs> I might come back. I like putting you on the spot. Like that. Uh, here we go. Let's talk about your buried treasure. Now, this is yeah, an yeah. idea we have on the show where we ask people to talk okay. about music, books, and things which they love and are perhaps yeah. not as widely known as they might be. What do you want to start with, Mark? Well, I'm going to back to Soho again. I'm going to start with Trisha's. Now, Trisha's, I think it's in, in Frith Street, and I only discovered it like like um, last Christmas. A friend of mine, Tris Penner, who produces for me sometimes, does a lot of things for the Beeb as, as, as well. He said he, he likes to go out discovering Soho. We like to go out seeing together, seeing what's left of Soho. And he took me to a little place down these little stairs called Trisha's. Is it up? It's kind of at the end of Fish Street in a little alleyway almost. No, it's, it's down the... some stairs. I never would have noticed right. it, Jonathan. And it was originally called the Evaristo, run by somebody called Trisha Begonzi. And it's probably, it's apparently Soho's, uh, uh, one of Soho's uh, oldest clubs, about 70 years old. Trisha's been running it for 20 years. It's been an old gambling den. It's still got the old bay, bays tables from the days it was a gambling den. And it's pretty tiny, isn't it? Tiny. Five pounds a year membership. Well, you can't <laughs> go wrong with that, can you? And it's a little place to gather for after hours people, people like on a little hidden doorway in Frith Street. And they have a, an alcohol licence, presumably. I think it's bring your own cans. So you can go in with a drink. You can go, go in Stay in chat. And you just meet like-minded night owls. Just, just night owls and yeah. night people. And I, I discovered this about a year ago. And I thought I knew most places in Soho. Um, 
but I discovered this place and it was a fantastic. So thank you to Tris Penn do for they, showing me this place. Do they play music down there? They play music down there. It's a great, it's a great kind of vibe. Lots of just, a, just a great kind of, um, and they have lots of pictures on on the walls of people who are who are kind of their most loyal patrons, mm. music people. And if it's and it's a big, it's a big honour if if you can get your your picture put on the wall at Trisha's. And but what is it you like about it? Because these days, I can understand twenty years ago this being quite a fine. Did you think a it's secretive, which appeals, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. But b it's open late, which yeah. used to be a big a big. Fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, of course, that isn't the issue, and there are any number of members' clubs that go on too late, as well as just regular bars. So yeah. it's not just the lateness of I the think, hour. I think it's also the, the fact there's also that one of those last little bastions of Soho mm. still hanging on in there, and you still feel you can still go somewhere in Soho with all its commercial eyes and everything else, the Starbucks, and I'm not allowed to say that, my, but, yeah. but lots of other coffee places as well, and sandwich places that we won't mention their names of, but blah blah blah. And um, you think, well, it's nice to find there's still places. Places like Trisha's, still there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, really kind of just a kind still of... Still hanging on in there. Uh, and when you're in there, though, who do you talk to? What is the conversation about? Is, oh, it, is the music loud enough uh, that you enjoy it without and you can talk over it? I, I think I think if you're just going there with friends, you know, you can go there and f- feel you're somewhere. You can kind of meet all kinds of, like, drunken characters. So it's the ambience. And a few kind of... Um, you know, sort of. I don't know what you call them. These men, ladies, um, transvestites. I'm always worried about saying the wrong thing. Transvestites. I, I, I think. I think people covers people, most. People covers most opportunities. Yeah, I think it's like a minefield. It's like a minefield, well, Jonathan, out there. Stick with non-specific, non-specific non-gender terms. T- non-gender terms. Yeah, people. Z is the interesting. Word you use now interesting dressed people of yeah. interesting persuasions. Interesting people yeah. who are just of interest, <laughs> of interest to other people. To other people. Well, yeah. ne- well negotiated. Yeah. No one, no one noticed. Yeah, yeah, yeah no one noticed. Uh, so yeah, you like the image. You like the kind of unexpectedness. I, of like, I like the unexpected. Yeah, yeah. I like the fact it's still hanging on, hanging on in there. Well, long may it continue. Yeah. Long may it continue. Have you ever thought about opening a bar yourself? I would love to. We all thought about Mark's Mamba Bar. We thought about <laughs> opening at one time. Okay, so we've done Trisha's in Soho. You all know, right, yeah. Trisha's. Uh, so now you want to talk about? Uh, is it Ziki? I've got Ziki Moran. It's a Turkish. She's he, shall I say, is known everywhere in Turkey, but no nowhere here so so he's a tr- hidden treasure here i say i say she he mark has got a carrier bag ladies and gentlemen and he's pulling something out of a carrier photograph bag. so you can get your reaction of zeki moran it's a well-loved here, well-thumbed book of, on the, there's a whole book on zeki moran there well look, i'll let you have a look at hang away oh here we are here is zeki moran wow wow what a glamorous looking person yeah here is zeki moran and you can have a flick through that if you I'm like. I'm going to have a flick through. This is well thumbed, well thumbed. And um, Zeki Moren was is a fantastic singer, um, singer in Turkey. Started with with a classical background, but wow. ended up in a more kind of pop classical crossover, wearing flamboyant costumes. So kind of somewhere not between gay. Danny Larue and yeah, Liberace. Liberace, but but a so, fantastic singer. But not drag. Not 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 dressing as a woman. Not but dressing drag. As and a definitely not gay. Man, I've got you. I mean, he's amazing. Here, that's he's very Liberace in a lot of these pictures. He is amazing, but but, well, but and he was a singer. Not but, not all, a... but all that aside, he was a f- um, just a fantastic singer. There's a beautiful, beautiful voice. And if you go anywhere in Turkey, it doesn't matter if you're a, a child, a a, a, a Builder, a kind of a young woman, anybody, you'd, you'd mention the word Zeki Moran and they go, oh, Zeki, 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 Zeki Moran. You, you said earlier when you first came in, we said, what should we play? And you said, you can't choose a favourite. Because uh, well, the thing is, I did I did actually have a song translated for me a few years back, and I wish I knew the song of that called. If I'd had a preparation, um, Johnson, I would have sung it for you, but I, I can't remember how it goes now. But I, I sung it to a Turkish audience in, in, in Turkey, and they knew exactly what the song was, wow. even in English, and they all sang their answers back to me 
young, old, everybody in the audience knew every single word of the song to this um, to this song, and it was kind of only we we meet only in my dreams or something. It's called. So you like? You know, I mean, you like that. Kind we meet of only in my dreams, and in my dreams our hearts in love. Yeah. So, oh. so sorry, whole, I was talking about. Do that again. Um, uh, we meet only in my dreams, and in our dreams, my dreams our hearts in love. We la da 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 da. I can't, I'm not going to do it now because I've also got a terrible, terrible cold. I were, apologise. Were strings listeners. involved? Were strings involved on this recording? Lots of strings. Yeah. Lots of. Lo- and at the end. Zeki's going, oh, 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 oh please, we've been only in my dreams, we've been only in my dreams, and falls down on the floor crying. Wow. Usually at the end of every song, everyone goes, oh, Zeki, 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 Zeki. And he's, he's this torch singer of tortured songs, and Zeki will fall crying, going, oh, oh, please, love me, love me, love me, love me. Wow. Yeah. Okay, do we have any Zeki Moran to play, or did we not? We didn't find no, any Zeki Moran. And in fact, if, if you put it on, it'll last about 20 minutes, okay. probably, so probably the best. Well, I'm gonna we can all look up, look, look on YouTube. Just look on YouTube and the things. People can find Zeki. So Man. he's no longer with us, sadly, but you yeah. can find uh, live performances on YouTube. It's Zeki Z E K I Muen M U R E N. Okay, yeah. that's amazing. Uh, thank you for sharing that with us. And yeah, finally, yeah. you want to talk about Jeremy? Reed. I want to talk about Jeremy Reed. I mean, Jeremy Reed is a li- is a little bit known, but I think not known enough because he he doesn't promote himself at all. Jeremy is our treasured glam rock poet who is a real poet. He, he, he writes all his poems in purple ink. He, he comes on stage and performs and throws up handfuls of sequins every time he, he performs. He wears a beret. He, I think he lives in a garret, actually. That's and, where and artists he, should live. He brings out a book every week Usually about they're about they're about Soho or or, or, or his favourite artists like like love love letters to Brian Jones or to Blue Reed or and he'll write in this very very fantastically romantic um, florid way that's absolutely brilliant. Every other word is like mascara or Soho, <laughs> or, but he's just a, a genius. He's an absolute genius, and I mean um, I just think he's watching. He's mesmerising. He it. should be on every. Hold on. Every other word is mascara or Soho. <laughs> so so what do you like about this, Mark? <laughs> I just think he, I just think he's fantastic. I just think he's a real a real poet, our last well, real poet. Well, I'm embarrassed to say I hadn't heard of Jeremy Reed. Well, there you I'm are. You embarrassed see. to say that. Um, would, could you? Do you have any of his words? I have you? a could poem read I could read of of of, um, of of his here, and this is called Black Honey. I want to be like Alice Diamond, a female shoplifter, a smash-and-grab raider lashed with purple mascara, drinking gin as ruin with the moon in her eye. If I drink another tumbler of the blues, then I'll die. Poison's my kind of ruin. It's sweet as black honey. Money's like a drug, a high-end addiction. I want to be like Billy with a flower in her hair, a voice sweet as black honey. There's money in despair. But don't confuse the issue. There's no right or wrong. If I drink another tumbler, I'll drown in the song. Poison's my kind of ruin. It's sweet as black honey. Money's like a drug, a high-end addiction. I want to squeeze the rhythm like juice from my voice. Of course, I've got no choice at the milk I slalom. If I'm another Billy, I'll take you there too. If black honey's money, then it's also the blues. Wow. He's a, a real treasure, I'm a British to, okay. treasure. I'm seeking both those out. And Trisha's bar, I believe I've been to. I think Jules Holland took one. Did he? Night. At the end of a long pub he call, probably, that's why I'm not certain. He probably would take you there. Jules would probably <laughs> take Jules, you there. Come down here, you'll love this place. <laughs> <Come> <laughs> yes. There's, no, there's no piano. Yes, yes. Don't yes. be worried. I won't yes. play boogie-woogie. Yes. <laughs> Jules would definitely know Trisha's, I think. Uh, pop quiz for you. Uh, milk or cream? Neither really, but milk if I had okay, to. Okay. Don't like milk or cream. Young or old? 
old, actually. Wow. Because it's this experience, it's life, it's... Um, um, it's 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 all all those things. I don't know what the young want. I don't know who they are. I don't know what they want. What do they want? I just don't know. They stay in their bedrooms looking at life through a, a lens through a computer. I mean, I, I just don't know what they want. So old people. Uh, look forward to Mark Armand's new album. Only because I'm kind of life through a lens. Life it's, a, <laughs> it's a harsh, scathing critique of young people, and you'll be pleased to know on the vinyl version. I do like the lyrics, young people. No, I mean, the I, lyrics are produced in a larger font for the older eye. I do like young people when they buy my records because they're intelligent, great young well, people. Well, who doesn't want to buy your records? Yeah. You're a master. <laughs> uh, it's so lovely to have you here. Needless and they to can say, buy my new greatest hits album, which is Hits and Pieces, yeah. the um, best of Mark Armand and Soft Cell. Is that it? Of course, yeah, with all the big hits on and the medium hits, and they're not so hits. They're the pieces. Mark, have you heard of this? thing called vinyl. I love vinyl. Are you bringing it out on vinyl? It's on vinyl. Of course it's on it's vinyl. It's on vinyl. Because the youngsters love the vinyl. And now. I'm on tour at the Roundhouse on the 22nd of March. 22nd of March at the Roundhouse. And this will be... Do you have a... Is it a kind of a tight band with you? Or is it a full orchestral mess? I'll be doing that later in the year, Jonathan. That's what I want. And I have a new, new album out. But this time it's, just, it's, a, it's a small band. I've got... got uh, with um, a More electronic bass, but Neil X on guitar, who, of course, you've met before. Of course. Um, do you work with Dave still, ever? Dave and I don't. Dave and I are currently estranged, but we will maybe sort of build that bridge because they're going to be a soft sell box set. Well, this now you year. say you maybe build that bridge. Who does? Who needs to do most of the bridge? Well, bridge Universal building? Records will build the bridge, and they'll bring okay. us in and make us have but a cup of tea together. But of the two together. of you, who will be most reluctant to cross that bridge, Mark? Um, I think me probably because <laughs> I was very well, I was very off off hand with Dave last time I saw him, which well, I regret terribly. Well, if so. you regret it terribly, then most of the work's done. If internally yeah. you can see that, yeah. then surely you can say to Dave, yeah. Mr. Ball, I'm sorry. I, I think Dave and I will, will will come together at some point over a cup of tea and we'll talk about the soft cell bo- box set, which will be great, a great I, moment. Well, I, I hope so, because it would be lovely to see you guys. And also, you don't want to have uh, the burnt bridges trailing behind you. I don't. That's the thing, when you, when you get older, you, you want to build some of those you bridges. You want to go out you. happy with it. Some, there's some bridges I can never build again, but, but, but the, the ones that are worth building are worth building. Which bridges couldn't you build? I can't say that. <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to make me say it. Okay, I won't. Uh, so, Mark Armand, you can see him live, and why wouldn't you? He's the most spectacular performer. London Roundhouse, 22nd of March. Then he's on to the Perth Concert Hall, 25th. York Barbican, 26th. 27th at Buxton Opera House. You see, that's where you want to be on a stage at an opera house. Yep. And then finally, Warrington Par Hall on the 28th of March. Late in the year, a new album. Late in the year, a new tour. Man, you're working hard. And Hits and Pieces out, out in March. New single, A Kind of Love, available now on download. I want to get Hits and Pieces in uh, on the vinyl. That's what I'm going to get, because I love a bit of vinyl still. And this is Mark's new single. I love the sound of this. This is kind of a... It's got a 60s beat to it. It's got a, a 60s kind of... beat. It's a little bit kind of um, northern solely, kind of like it's not unusual, meets kind of northern... You know, with a bit of psychedelia thrown in. OK, this is A Kind of Love. Mark Armand. Thank you, Mark. That was the new thing. That was a great sound from Mark Armand there, a kind of love. I'm joined in the studio now by Mr Philip Hook. He is uh, one of the directors, I believe, of uh, Sotheby's. Is that correct, sir? That's correct. OK, uh, and that, well, that's an esteemed position to hold. Well, yes, yes, it is. Life is constantly exciting in Sotheby's. Well, Sotheby's is, uh, how old is it, as the auction house itself? When did it, when was Sotheby's it Sotheby's was fo- founded in 1744. Holy so it's moly. it's been going for... Well, over 250 years. Now, wouldn't it have been, uh, wouldn't it have shown a great prescience if the people who found it in 1774 had just bought a lot of stuff that was available very cheaply in the high street at that stage, locked it in the basement, preserved it, and said, do not open until the year 2016? 
It would indeed. And, it and would did, indeed, did yes. Did they do such yes. a thing? But um, I think the idea of a rising art market is something of more recent Well, here's uh, the invention. Well, and that's something which I got from your book. Philip's book is called Rogue's Gallery. It's a history of art and its dealers, a fascinating history of, of older artists and older dealers. It's, there are no kind of contemporary names as such in it. It's not about living folk, is it? It's not about living art dealers because um, I value my continuing professional relationships. And, of course, the, the legal system can be most punishing. Well, indeed. <laughs> yeah, I value my kneecaps. Really. But it's fascinating because this is a comparatively recent relationship development, the idea that an artist would need an agent, would need someone to go in between them and the customer. That's right. I mean, I think that people haven't properly realised how important art dealers are, actually, in the history of art. Uh, not just in the um, formation of taste in older art, but also particularly at contributing to the development of modern art. I mean, dealers are absolutely crucial when one gets into modern art. Well, let's art. drill into that statement a little bit here. Now, are we talking about them in terms of them changing the way we perceive artists, changing the way we value them? Are we talking about them actually changing popular tastes and actually appreciating artists that might otherwise have been dismissed or seen as being too shocking, too modern and not worthy of our attention? Well, I think it starts with the Impressionists because I think the Impressionists were the first really modern movement of art. So they radical were, shock of the new. They were the first shocking new art and for that reason they were not admitted to the um, academies yeah. the conservative academies they were kind of mocked in a way some and of the, the older like George Shaw's work was seen as being ridiculous initially wasn't that's it? right that's right so they needed they needed a champion they needed an external champion and this is when art dealers became heroic when they took on modern artists who no-one else understood, and they promoted them, they supported them, they, uh, in the end, triumphed. But I think that the history of modern art would look very different if it wasn't for art dealers. So you think they changed the, the, the art scene in that we now do appreciate those artists? Do you think it could not have happened without them, it would not have happened without them, that we wouldn't have turned around and said, well, actually, these are works of great worth, regardless of the, the monetary value we place upon them? Well, I think it would have happened... It could well have happened differently. Mm. I mean, I think the fact that, for instance, John Orwell took the Impressionists to America in 1886. They'd had, he'd had absolutely no luck with them at all yeah. in Europe. And then taking them to, to the Americans was a stroke of genius. And they really took off in America. Do but it took Duran Ruel to do it. And do you uh, look at his motives for doing that merely as, like, I love this work, this work resonates with me, I wish others to appreciate it and share it? Or was it a slightly more kind of a, a crude motive in that I see something here which, if I can get this appreciated, I will make a bigger amount of money, a larger amount of cash? I think all art dealers have those twin motivations. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the good devil and the, and the angel and the devil on their shoulders. Well, I think, I think both devils, both motivations, yeah. actually produce very good art dealers and produce very good results for art. I mean, money isn't necessarily a bad muse. No. No, well, also, it's, a, it's necessary, perhaps, for artists to be able to carry on creating, of course. Now, you know, Impressionism, we look back now and you think, well, how can that ever have been looked at askance? That was it's such a beautiful and such a clever way of expressing ideas on canvas. But Cubism, I can see why people push back against that quite easily, because that was so strikingly non-figurative in the traditional sense. Yeah, they certainly did. I mean, it was a huge revolution, the revolution of Cubism. And again, it took an art dealer 
Daniel Henry Kornweiler, who espoused Cubism, who became the friend and the art dealer of Picasso, of Braque in Paris, just before the First World War. And without Carmela, again, I think uh, the history of art would have looked, history of modern art would have looked very different. I mean, he really did pioneer understanding of Cubism, which was not easy to understand. And why do you think, uh, as an individual, he got it when so many didn't? Or do you think that he was just ready and open to the challenge of this new form, or was he someone who was waiting for something new to come along and shake things up and excite him? I think it's a very interesting question. What makes people appreciate really um, avant-garde, difficult new art? Um, and certainly Durand Ruel did. Uh, the big difference, of course, today is that no art is shocking anymore. Yeah. So, um, well, someone might do something that's shocking. Do you think that we are beyond being shocked by by art by, by in in any of its forms? I think we're, I think we've gone beyond boundaries. Really, I think that it's now accepted that new art is very very um, outrageous and um, would be. <laughs> wouldn't be taken seriously if it wasn't. Are you, which... su- are you surprised, though, when, when people move back to an older form of art, like they go back to... Like, Victorian art for a while was, was kind of derided. It was seen as this kind of chocolate box, overly sentimental, slightly prissy, parsimonious view of the world. And I know during that period, Andrew L- Lord Webber bought everything. And, of course, now you, that stuff is sought after, it's, it's praised, it's valued, and it's, and it's cherished. But it was, for a while, very much just out of fashion. Yes, it's true, and um, art does, fashion does does change in art, and often it is driven by art dealers. And um, you know, this is this is the great joy of art dealing that there are a number of characters in my book who are genuinely rogues, genuinely eccentrics, <laughs> genuinely real personalities and um i think it's almost a prerequisite of being an art dealer that you have you have you are you are a bit eccentric um i love i fell in love with a number of the the characters i was writing about because they were they were just so um so outrageous i mean that that whole thing of selling fantasy yeah. which is essentially what art dealers are doing well i guess you have to a you have to make someone think that others want it as badly as they do that's right but at the same time i guess you have to give them the impression that if they miss it they will regret that loss so i know i mean and some work though i find it surpri- not surprising but strange how you could persuade someone like you look at the work of bacon for example yes which, uh, there was a. I'm going to go on a slight detour here. I remember seeing Anthony Quinn being interviewed by Michael Parkinson when I was a kid in the 1970s, and he'd bought himself a Gauguin because he played Gauguin in the film Lust for Life. Mm. And, and Parkinson questioned, and it cost him a lot of money even back then. And he said, but, but he said, the thing is, I have it on my wall, and every time I walk past it, and every time I look at it, my spirit soars. And so it's, it's worth everything yep. to me for that reason. Yep. And I can see why that is. You look at Gauguin's work, or otherwise there's a power to it, there's an emotion to it. Now, you look at something like Bacon, which is more often than not disturbing and somewhat troubling. Why would you want that on your wall? Well, <laughs> um, different tastes have um, different, different needs. I mean, um, you could say the same about... Edward Munch's The Scream. I would say the instance. same. I wouldn't want that on my wall. Uh, I think for some people to have 
an absolute icon mm. of art on their wall, regardless of what it actually depicts, is immensely exciting. But I think I think I think Bacon is an interesting is an interesting artist because um, one of the stories I came across when I was researching the book was about a London dealer who was fearsomely good at selling art, and he was selling a Bacon to a client. And um, the client quite liked the bacon, but being bacon, it was quite a difficult picture. So he said, he said, um, well, I like the picture, but I'm not sure that my wife will. <laughs> and it doesn't really go with our decor. <laughs> Such was the compelling sales pitch of Frank Lloyd that in the end, the cowed client um, was told by by Lloyd, um, you can change your wife, you can change your decor, but if you own this picture, you won't want to change the picture. <laughs> so and, everything else. And the card, the card client did actually buy the picture, divorced his wife and redecorated. Wow. So, so <laughs> art can have a very transformative <laughs> effect on you. Particularly when compelled by a really, uh -huh. really persuasive dealer. Yes. Uh, it's a fascinating <laughs> book, and I'm, I'm hoping that you will do a volume that brings it up to date when you no longer have to worry so much about uh, the <laughs> about, world you currently inhabit. It's about my kneecaps. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's a great book. Philip Hook, Rogue's Gallery, History of Art and Distillers. It's a fascinating history of art. There's some beautiful uh, paintings and reproductions of paintings and also images of the people discussed in the book as well and some incredible characters that leap off the page at you. Philip, thank you so much for coming in. Alice Lowell. I think I first saw you working on screen, uh, acting on screen in Hot Fuzz. That was the first time, and I saw oh, really? you in Kill List, but I loved Sightseers. Uh, mm. And you wrote that as well, didn't you? Yes, with um, Steve Oram, who is my co-star in the film. Now, an amazing film, quite, quite in some way, a very funny film and also a very dark film. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And that seems to be the area you choose to inhabit. Um, yeah, I guess, uh, I don't know why, but I'm just drawn to that side of things. I think it's very British, sort of, you know, dark sense of humour. Maybe I've been well, I've been force-fed on that by growing up, you know, watching lots of dark comedies with my mum and dad as a kid. Yeah. I don't know, Dennis Potter and the like, Mike Lee and that, that sort of thing. But, yeah, I tend towards the dark. But I also, you know, I like genre stuff. So yeah. I like to see stuff happening on screen. I'm, I don't I can't ever see myself doing a gentle drama. And that scene, generally that scene as being unusual in a woman in this business acting. There mm. aren't as many women. And I know there are, fa you know, probably just as many women love genre films. When you go to something like Fright Fest, which I know you enjoy as well as I do, you will see it's probably a 70-30 split or something like that in the mm. audience. Uh, and I suspect there would be more if they thought they would be welcome there, perhaps, mm. you know, while well, like, the gaming community seems somewhat male-dominated just for those reasons. Um, but it's still seen as something somewhat unusual. Do you encounter that? Yeah, I mean, um, I actually took part in a women in horror sort of panel for Fright Fest and it was the first time they'd done that. So I think they are kind of making an effort to kind of be more inclusive. I don't know, I think there's a bit of a, a spurt in uh, female horror <laughs> recently, um, which I think is normal. I mean, you know, to me, women are very connected to blood. You know, pregnancy is horror. It's the stuff of horror. You know, Frankenstein was supposed to be the first horror written by Mary Shelley. So I kind of think, why aren't there more horror films the, the by scary, women? The scary thing there is a man gave birth. <laughs> 
That's true. It was a doctor, wasn't it? Yeah, that's it? why we're all scared. All us men are quaking. Because, of course, that's at the very core of your new movie. Now, how would you sell or describe Prevenge, which is opening uh, in various kind of... I guess it's got selected cinemas, is what we say. Uh, right now, Prevenge, I saw it. I really enjoyed it. I really love the fact that it's as full-on as it is. But how would you describe it? Um, it's a revenge spray, uh, done by a pregnant woman and it's a very dark comedy with a dash of pathos and uh, mystery to it sort of a psychological uh spiraling into craziness prepartum craziness prepart this is the first prepartum craziness film i think i've ever seen yeah oh good i mean it's interesting <laughs> because maybe i was thinking halfway through and i was trying to because i knew i was going to interview you otherwise i would have been given my full attention and i was thinking well rosemary's baby has at the core of it uh, i think why you are scared for partly is they use the idea of pregnancy and the kind of fragility and of course she looks so kind of worryingly thin anyway mm. so she was very fragile looking but they use the the concept of and that's how it appears more often in fiction is that we think, oh, I must, I, I feel more engaged with this and more empathetic towards this person because she's going through this carrying the baby. But of course, in, in your film, that isn't really the case. I mean, if anything, it seems, and I don't want to give anything away here, but almost like the baby is complicit in this revenge spree that the, the lead character is going on. That's very unusual. Yeah, well, I love Rosemary's Baby and it's one of my major influences, you know. Um, but I did feel like watching it... Um, you know, the female character's the last one in on the joke, almost. She doesn't know that she's carrying Satan. Yeah. She thinks she's carrying a little Andy or Jenny, as she keeps saying. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I wanted to make something that was more, you know, someone who knew what they were doing and fully in control of, of what was happening to them. Um, in some ways, she's being controlled by the baby. Or is she? Is she crazy? You know, that's kind of the issues that I'm raising in the film is um does it change you having a baby do you become possessed by by completely different emotions that you've never had before and i think because it was my real life pregnancy which i should mention i was actually pregnant so you're actually I... pregnant so you wrote it before you were pregnant no i was six months pregnant and um someone came to me and said do you want to make a film and i said i can't i'm pregnant and i went away and thought well what if i wrote something for myself playing a pregnant character and that's when I came up with Prevenge. Wow. So I was six months and then we filmed it in the next two months um, over 11 days. It was an 11-day shoot and, um, you know, had to write it really, really quickly. <laughs> but I was sort of in the middle of it and mm. I really felt like I'm, there will be something, there'll be a sense of urgency and a sense of realism and craziness to this project because I am actually pregnant. So it all happened in a whirlwind, really. Well, I find that amazing because um, I've never been pregnant, but my wife has. Against all yes. odds, I, I have a wife. And she, um, <laughs> we were recently, a while ago, we were talking about whether maybe we should have one more baby before we're both mm. too old. And she said, no, you know, see, her career's going very well. She writes movies, as you know. Mm. And she was saying, no, because my brain turns to mush during pregnancy. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't be able to write. I wouldn't be able to work. I don't think I could do it when I was pregnant. And I've heard that other women say that. Mm. The changes in the, the mental state and the way you think about things and the way you act. Mm. But, but clearly that wasn't in your case. I had my first trimester, I was really exhausted and wiped out and I had to turn work down. And and I thought, this is a disaster. You know, I'm a freelancer. Maybe my career is over and it's only just started, the pregnancy, you know, then there's a, all the other stuff. 
Then when I got into my second trimester, I think I had what's known as the baby pinks as opposed to the baby blues. And it's like a cocktail of hormones, which makes you really energetic. And everything that I was offered, I said yes to. That was when I agreed to do the film. I was like, yes, yeah, yeah, I can do it. And I felt really relaxed as well. I was like, yeah, you know, stuff that I would normally have fretted about. So that's amazing. What a great side effect. Oh, it was. It was really incredible. And, you know, there's an element to the film where the female character is a superheroine in her own mind because, like, the special powers of pregnancy... You know, she's using all these things that we usually perceive as weaknesses, as strengths within the film. She's using them to inveigle her way into strangers' homes and stuff. Um, But, yeah, I I just... All of that stuff, I had euphoric moments. And I think some people use that energy to, like, redecorate their house or something. They, like, do nesting. But I used it to make a film instead. (laughs) To make a horror film, we should just make (laughs) that clear. a really dark Uh, film. But you use the opportunity as well. You have some kind of, like, deft uh, digs at uh, the nonsense that some people spout towards pregnant people, as well as mm. as well as the fact that being a woman, you're right, that it gives you access, especially in a horror film character, to areas in life which would normally people think, oh, there's a man at my door, I'm not going to let him in. But mm. you use the idea of the pregnant woman as a non-threatening... Yeah, like a Trojan horse kind of thing, smuggling in this evil force, basically. But, yeah, that was all really fun because... You know, I think you can feel a sense of frustration at being patronised or infantilised when you're pregnant. And, you know, as someone who's, you know, freelancer and very much feels like I'm usually in control of what I'm doing and I have my own rules, suddenly you're subjected to a set of rules that is, you you know, you re-enter society from being a freelancer into being like you know, a so-called normal person and, and suddenly you're going to prenatal yoga and all of that stuff and feeling like there's, there's something a bit weird about this. Um, and so I, I, I took all of my discomfort and all my fears about pregnancy and just put them in the film. And then I didn't feel them anymore. I, I was like, oh, it's OK. But I think anyone who's pregnant and has felt irritated in any way, they could get some catharsis from the film. What were the most irritating things you encountered as a pregnant woman? Oh, um... It's more sort of embarrassment sometimes, like, um, you know, someone during prenatal yoga, there was a bit where we had to lie down in the dark and um, I'd mentioned that I'd got a little bit of lower back pain and in the dark the teacher grabbed my ankles and swung my legs from side to side in a gentle <laughs> motion and I opened my eyes and saw that she was doing this and it, we got eye contact, it was really awkward and I just had to close my eyes and pretend it hadn't pretend it wasn't happening and that was just sort of thing that I found awkward but of course it just gets worse from then on you've got all sorts of people looking up you basically and you know seeing all your bits <laughs> by the end of it you don't care I mean that that was the thing about the film as well like the first scene that we shot I was naked in the bath and it was like hi I'm your female director you have to take me really seriously now I'm going to disrobe um, <laughs> and that was the first scene but in a way what a great power play I mean, imagine if you worked with Martin Scorsese and he said, you've got to look, you respect me, and he just walked out naked. I mean, you'd be, you'd be I think terrified. He does. Yeah. I think that's probably what he does, isn't it? Let's hope so. That's how he gets those performances out of Matthew McConaughey, just by get, getting it out and swinging oh. it around. Oh, so that's, that's what we blame it on. <laughs> yes, yes. A naked Scorsese dragging an actor around by his ankles, <laughs> just shouting, emote. That's a wonderful image. <laughs> Uh, so this is, but what a, it's a great achievement because to to accomplish anything when you are, you know, 
growing a new life inside you is a challenge, I would have thought, more so than, than normal times. So now that you are no longer pregnant, at least I assume you're no longer pregnant, because the baby's <laughs> there, you might be, I don't know, maybe you don't know. Um, but uh, are you finding it easier to work in, or do you miss that kind of endorphin rush or the hormonal balance that created that kind of fearlessness? Well, well, people say to me, like, oh, the shoot must have been really difficult. And I'm like, no, the shoot was brilliant. I had an amazing time. I had loads of fun. Um, it's more the sort of post-production of a baby and, you know, and of a film because, you know, I was in the edit changing nappies. I was, you know, there was one point where we went into a sound studio which was in someone's loft and we had to winch the baby, like literally using a winch with the car seat into the loft and it was like the hottest day of the year. And, and just like taking her to festivals and stuff, which has been amazing. And I, you know, I, I didn't know that I'd be going to lots of international festivals, but I've taken the baby with me. So these are like film festivals. You're not going to like Glastonbury. That's what we should make clear. So you mean you're yeah, we go to international music festivals. Yeah, well, just no, well, for the hell of it. You might for fun. You might. You might. Look, it can't all be about promoting the movie. You've got to have a bit of you time. I'll have a bit of me time. Yeah. No, it's it's film festivals, and you know, it's been brilliant, and I, it's an opportunity I haven't been able to afford to miss. But I've sort of taken the baby with me, and luckily she's this smiling nice little imp yeah, creature adorable um and and people don't seem to mind but um that's been the tiring element i guess the travel and and that's what you don't people don't tell you about as a director that you know you're spending a year afterwards at least promoting the film that, and well, getting it out there which can't be anywhere near as i mean it's i'm sure it's nice when people say nice things to you about your film mm. and it gets well received but at the same time it can't be as exciting or as fulfilling as creating it in the first place yeah i mean yeah i think the the hunger is you want to get onto the next one mm. you're sort of like oh that went be- better than i thought i feel like i've learned something and i've got a bit better and i've got a bit more confident and i want to do another one and you can't because you're doing like six interviews or so, yeah. you know what and again you don't want to look a gift horse in the mouth but um at the same time, I'm raring to go on the next one now. But I guess to write as well, you need a, 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 a fairly large chunk of free time. You can't just squeeze it in half an hour here, 20 minutes there. You think you're going to. You think you're going to write a bit of your screenplay on the train to Plymouth, but you you don't, not with a baby as well. So, um, yeah, I kind of think after we're on the final push of the film now because it's out tomorrow, um, you know, and it is like labour. It's like that final push and then... You know, after this, I'm going to have a bit of time to kind of get some stuff done, uh, hopefully. And, and net, will it be more high? Are you going to stay within the genre you love? It's going to be dark, but it's going to be a bit more conceptual and a bit weirder. Because I, I feel like, you know, horror is something I don't want to be confined by. It's a nice peg to hang things on, and that's useful for, you know, maybe selling your idea. But... Um, I kind of want to do something weirder now and I'm kind of hoping that I could take the audience with me on a so weirder place. weird in a Lynchian sense, weird in a Cronenberg sense, weird in a Fassbinder sense? Um, maybe in a sort of more surreal kind of um, the lobster area sort of... Yeah, I mean, not really. I don't think it's going to be like anything. Well, not necessarily like anything, <laughs> but, but you're going to go... So it's going to be not realism as such, necessarily. Yeah, not realism. yeah. I, yeah. Um, Which Prevenge isn't actually done really, no, but I mean, it's, no. it's plausible enough. It's, it's you know, I've kind of used the naturalism of the performances and the sort of grittiness of it to fool you into thinking that you're watching something real. But actually, it's kind of a fantasy and it's slightly theatrical as well. It's like all the setups are, you know, it's lots of two-handers, it's lots of vignettes and, you know, the atmosphere is quite artificial deliberately because I wanted to create this un- uneasy sense of, you know this crazy woman who and you're sort of 
travelling inside her in a way. You're lo- looking out of her eyes at the world and it's a, quite a crazy, claustrophobic, scary place. So, um, yeah, I just enjoyed sort of, you know, collaborating with amazing sound, design- amazing sound designer, amazing composers who helped me create that sort of atmosphere. Well, I loved the music at the beginning as well. It had a kind of 80s exploitation feel to it, which I imagine was deliberate. Yeah, definitely. We we had conversations about, um, you know, that I wanted it to have a sci-fi kind of feel because I sort of felt like pregnancy for this woman and for many members of the audience ought to be alien territory that they're exploring, you know. And um, But I wanted it to have a bit of familiarity and a bit of warmth to it as well. So there was a kind of retro feeling to it and a lot of the films that I love you know informed it there's I wanted a bit of sort of dystopian kind of city urban fantasy like Blade Runner or Clockwork Orange and so there's stuff like that in there there's Argento a little bit there's even stuff a bit like 10cc and um, Demi Roussos because I said oh we need a love theme so I said to the composers can you go away and have a listen to ELO (laughs) and stuff like that and they had really good fun like coming up with a slightly cheesy but still quite spooky little love motif. I'm glad you mentioned Dario Argento in there, one of my favourite directors. Uh, I'm going to play a record now. I'm going to say goodbye to you. But before you leave, I'm going to tell you about the time I was nearly arrested with Dario Argento in Rome. Oh. I'll share that on the show another time. But it's so <laughs> great to have you. Alice, congratulations. It's, uh, it's a, uh, you know, if you want to go and see a film which is uh, deftly dark and funny and at times shocking with a definite feminist slant, but it's not heavy-handed, don't panic, <laughs> then go and catch Prevenge while you can now. It's on uh, release in selected cinemas all over the country from tomorrow, I believe. Is that Yes, from tomorrow. Good luck with it, uh, and I can't wait to see what you do next. Thanks, Alice. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, OK, so I'm joined in the studio, I'm pleased to say, by uh, two of the creators of Time One. Uh, now, that's an Escape the Room adventure that you can do here in London. I'll find out if it's going to be moving elsewhere in the UK, and I hope it is. Uh, but for those who don't know, an Escape the Room is where... Well, I, I want to ask the guys to explain that for us. Uh, Josh Ford is here, and Nick Moran, they uh, co-create Time One, and, and jo- Nick, you're in charge mainly of designing the games. Yes, that's it? correct, yes. Well, let's go to you first, Josh. Uh, what is an Escape the Room? Good question. Well, um... I'll actually, ask, I'll actually ask Nick to answer this one. Well, the basic format is quite straightforward. You have 60 minutes to achieve an objective. Usually it's to an escape a room. That's kind of the most standard objective. But so the, clue, more... the clue is in the descriptive term that uh, we use generically for them. You are going to escape a room. Yes, okay. it's, it's pretty straightforward. It's one of these things that exactly... T- it's what is on the tin. Yeah, so we, we don't need to overthink this. No, no. <laughs> but uh, they can be quite complicated, though. You know, time run, for example. We don't, you, don't, you don't escape a singular room. There are kind of multiple environments that you're kind of working your way towards through singular objectives, etc., etc. Now, you have two. Is that right? You have two different storylines going? Or yes, so we that? launched uh, Time Run 2015, the first game, and that in itself was like an evolution of the, the escape game you've just been talking about. Um, and the premise was that we wanted to sort of take this sort of concept to the next level by adding this... Um, really fantastic stage set um, production values and then the story that wraps around the whole thing. So you really feel like you're in a story adventure. So it's almost immersive theatre as well, in a way, but without without performance. Yes. Or, or certainly once you get into the room, there are performers before you get in, of course. Yes, exactly that. Um, We're trying to create sort of um, a real sense of almost a live video game-style experience, a world that never breaks from start to finish. And doing that without actors is actually quite a challenge, but you have yeah. to have it so that rather than having actors that give the character it's you, you are the kind of protagonist in this amazing adventure across space and time. Well, 
At least that's the plan. It is. I mean, I, I've done both of them, and I can say wholeheartedly. And by the way, I paid both times, which is not a dig at you. I'm very pleased to play, but I just wanted people to know that I'm not. I'm not offering this uh, advice because I had a freebie. I paid. I was happy to pay. I had a great time in both of them. And you're right. There is a huge level of attention to detail in the sets and in the the crafting of the storyline. And there are some kind of I don't know whether special effects, physical effects, I guess is the word to use there. They must occasionally go wrong, though, don't they? Oh, yes. I mean, everything can go wrong. Nothing is immune to going wrong. But, I mean, mostly they're, they're, when they do go wrong, they're done in a way that we can cover up and no one notices. <laughs> Thankfully, it's a world that we define the boundaries of, so most people would never notice if anything goes wrong because they don't know what's happening behind the scenes. Yeah. But believe me, when motors break and there's a man just pulling a curtain or pushing something from behind the scenery... Uh, most people never notice, but it's quite panicked backstage. I can imagine, especially with the, because it's time-sensitive, of course, so you can't actually go in and reset and refix, because they've got that, and you've got other people waiting to come in for the next block, I guess. How many shows a night, if you call it a show, how many uh, escapes do you get through on a given evening? Josh? So, well, the new game, uh, we actually touched on the new game, which we launched uh, end of last year, is a slightly different format, and that actually allows us to get more teams through, uh, which is important because there's also a slight commercial aspect to what we do. Obviously, there's a large investment goes into making these beautiful, elaborate stage sets. And so, on a Saturday, we will have 30 teams play the Celestial Chain. Wow. Now, how do you get 33 people through in a game which takes an hour? So, you must have more than one room, or I guess you start them in a staggered way? Well, without saying too much, you have five lovely different historic environments that you travel through and obviously you pulse teams through it um so the format's quite different to your we've actually taken the format um on quite a long way from the original escape game and we, we actually dare to say we're not an escape game in our second iteration of time run the celestial chain it is a live game adventure immersive adventure and the straightforward nature of celestial chain i mean it still has its own objective um, you have to get as many items as you can from across various time periods across time to power a device called the Celestial Chain. I don't want to go into the narrative of it, but you can you can read all about it on that website if you want. But there's basically an ancient force that you have to stop by getting all these items together to bind them forever. Yeah. In a way, the story is not the most important part of it. It's the fun of the challenge when you're in the room. Isn't the it? story is really a vehicle for mm. the time period you go to and the environment you go to and the things you have to get. It's the kind of the wrapping on the actual kind yeah. of the meat inside of the so to speak. I guess that's part of the joy when, when you do it. And I've done it obviously going in with without any uh, advanced knowledge is not knowing where you're going to be when you go into the next room. Although I must say on the first of the time ones, I was slightly surprised because it's quite the last room is somewhat shocking. And quite a bold choice. Do you think so? Yeah, yeah. I think I think I'm a, again. Don't want to spoil it for people, but it is quite. It's a, a dark period of, of it history. It goes to a dark, speak. fairly recent period in history, in which you know, and you go in, and I, I don't want to give too much away, but <coughs> there's a swastika. So uh, you know, <laughs> and it's kind of it's kind of shocking. Well, who doesn't want to defeat the Nazis? Well, you do exactly. That's that's how you think. Okay, well, we're going to do this. I'm really I'm filled with even more enthusiasm to to solve this and stop uh, history happening the way it did. But uh, it's quite interesting. And presumably, you have to juggle. Uh, some elements of taste, some ideas, because there were some periods that you couldn't go through, some events that you couldn't touch on in something, which is essentially an entertainment. Yes, and even, I mean, since we've since broached the subject of Nazis, yeah. I mean, in that particular time period, we were quite careful to use, you know, uh, rather than kind of the big man himself, it's Albert Speer's office, kind of, you know, architect, yeah. not something, you know, you've got to juggle these things and be sensitive as much of the time period and the constraints. And you are to be, once again, in your defence, you are with, not that you need defending, but you are juggling something which we know, because uh, some within the Nazi party had an interest in the occult and uh, the, uh, occult icons and, and items, so and that ties in with the overall story, I think, rather, rather elegantly. Um, ha- so, presumably, you're hoping to expand, you're hoping to do these rooms in other Absolutely. parts of the country and also in other parts the world perhaps well 
So we launched our second game last year in London and we've got loads of ideas and concepts we want to bring out in the next year. And it's all, rather than volume of getting out of different cities, it's it's kind of more about being innovative and pioneering within the sort of live game industry. But don't you think, I think it would be nice, well, don't you think it would be nice to have one in Manchester, to have one in Scotland so that people can go as well? Because at the moment it does, you know, it's, it's only here in, the, in London and you'd have just as big a demand, I would have thought, in those cities, well, in most cities. if there's people want to kind of, kind of come and help us open them in those cities, then we're, we're all ears. But I think at the moment we're still in the process of developing the games and making them as good as possible. And We're still quite young as well, you know, to, to expand to other cities where we're not as kind of familiar with the kind of the scene in the industry might be quite a challenge yeah. at this stage. You I want to get... say that, we, we would like to go to we have looked at New York. I think it's it's kind of picking the, the, the cherry picking the, the places where there'll be an audience of people who really want to go to it because it is high production and that comes with a higher price ticket. And if, you, I, if I may quote Kevin Costner, if you build it, they will come. Uh, okay. <laughs> you know, come on, Costner. If you pay for it, I will build it. Ah, I see where we're going here. So finance, if there was finance in place, you would probably do that. Um, New York, though, is a challenging market, I thought, for you, because they have many already well-established escape the rooms there. And I've been in several of them. And some of them I hear are absolutely fantastic as well. But I think that also proves that there's a good market and mm. something that's been proven in another marketplace might be exciting people to come to, an event kind of opening. When did this begin, the escape the rooms? Because I, um, And I heard, someone told me it started in Russia. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but it might have started in America. I but... think there's rumours. Uh, yeah, I've, I, heard they, I heard they started in Budapest. Wow, we've um, all heard different things. Yes, uh, I think there's probably one man just doing escape the room rumours. <laughs> well, they certainly sort of started making a splash in Europe about five years ago. Right. And in the UK, and they've just exponentially grown. I think each year there's there's two, three times more than the year before, and it's kind of at that tipping point of almost mainstream now. Whereas three or four years ago, I think people wouldn't have really understood what it was, and or thought it was a kind of geeky pursuit to to, to go and do. Yeah. Um, and it's been very much front and centre for a good year and a half now. So, so I think it's it's um it's going to keep on building, getting bigger, and hopefully. It means it gives us the opportunity to keep on making more elaborate, exciting games. You could do a Brexit one, escape the EU. You could do a kind of big themed one. Uh, I think, but no one knows how that's going to end, so it'll be quite difficult for us, really. And and it's been done. Uh, How do you (laughs) gauge the difficulty level of the challenges, though? Because I guess that must be pretty crucial. You've got people for a set period of time. It can't be too hard that no-one can do it. It can't be too easy that everyone does it. So uh, do you test it with, with kind of like blind subjects, so to speak? It's actually quite a challenge because... Uh, no matter any piece of information that you give people, so even if they're a tester that you know, they still have pieces of information that other people won't have and they have context that people won't have. So really, testing and previews are quite essential. And in previews, of course, lots of things go wrong, but they're a kind of useful tool for kind of really showing how the game is and how it's doing and difficulty gauging and also not helping people really helps, yeah. ironically. So, so actually making them figure it out for themselves. Making them figure it out for yourselves because then you then work out what they don't know and what they don't understand and what the leaps of logic that they have to do without you. Normally you're told when you go in, look, if, something, if you pull something, it doesn't come off the wall very easily, you know, don't. There'll be nothing hidden behind here, for example. Don't try and pull the pictures off the wall. Something, different rules in different But you must have people sometimes who, through using just pure brute force, have destroyed parts of your beautifully constructed sets. Uh, yes, um, for, and there are some things that people repeatedly destroy. I don't know why. Maybe there's some sort of... So in the first time period in the new game, there's a large portrait of Queen Victoria, which people repeatedly pulled off the wall. Some sort of anti-monarchist sentiments. I don't know what's happening in the UK currently. But repeatedly, multiple groups just... It's the only thing that people absolutely determined to get off wow. that wall. Wow. And it's screwed in pretty hard. They have to really try. So have they taken it off the wall? Yeah, about 15 times. Wow. And, and you actually have to kind of, you know... I've tried it myself just to see how it works. I mean, foot against the wall, both hands pulling as hard as you can. But 
you must be. Are you not watching the teams through cameras? Oh yeah, we are watching them, but it does it does almost no damage. So if they want to if they want to tinker, we don't we don't, we don't really want to disrupt their experience and well, break the world. That's very big of you. So you don't want to go in and destroy their experience, even though they're destroying the experience. Exactly. But all they're doing is harming some cheap screws. So in the end, and Queen Victoria, but she's been dead for a long while. So. Well, uh, there is that, I suppose. There uh, is also Liquidine. People having been to the pub first, yes. and then coming to the uh, a game. I think people get frustrated quicker, or find a um, a more direct solution to the problem <laughs> they're, they're, they're sort of confronted with. But generally, that's part of the challenge of making the sets is making sure that they're robust. Would you turn people away if they seem so drunk you thought, okay, this is not going to end well for any of us? Yeah, uh, yes, definitely. But we'd, we'd let them come back another time. But yeah. you know, we do try and encourage in every single piece of communication we give people, please don't be drunk because they just won't enjoy themselves. Also, they get more you're, frustrated. Your 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 problem solving area of the brain isn't going to be as sharp when you've had a couple of lagers. No, you, you no. don't score well. Definitely, we've got yeah. we've got um, hard stats to to show that. Yes, exactly. Your failure you, rates. You've got telemetry that you put together. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so um so possibly expansion into New York and. Uh, here in the UK, though, are you planning another way? Because you use, in both of them, there's a running character who we should talk about briefly, Babbage. Yes, yes. and Luna. Obviously. Oh, and Luna, of course, I'm sorry. Babbage's yeah. maker. Yeah, it's all about Babbage for me. <laughs> yes, well, Babbage is the real star of the so show. So Babbage is a robot. Yes, he is. He's a, uh, a small metallic gentleman, as I think someone once called him, which is quite a strange way of just saying the word robot. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he's kind of, um, a quite affable, eccentric, rather obsessed with death. Perhaps that's because he's so many time runners run through time to their certain doom. But I think the, he's kind of the, uh, the chap who helps you in your journey through time, gives you advice and guidance along the way. Some helpful, some less helpful, some just chatty. Yeah. That's how he is. But it's, a, it's a, a lovely idea. I don't think I've seen anyone else do that in the various escape rooms where you have a character and you have a kind of a brand almost which I suppose is part of your thinking, is it? Yes, well, the whole concept is the framework which allows us to have these uh, adventures and wonderful design rooms is based on time travel. And Luna Fox is our protagonist, who is the Edwardian scientist who's uh, discovered time travel. And she sends you back on these missions through time to find things or uh, stop evil goddesses in this case. And she invented, well, she uh, built Babbage as her aide and assistant who then helps you. So they're the characters you have create the framework for us to have these uh, amazing missions through time. But as you said, it's not really about the macro story. It's about providing a framework that makes you, you know, feel like you're the centre of attention. Which you're, I think you're is... immersed and you are, you are leading the action. Yeah, you're leading you're the, the action. Protagonist, yeah. Yes, and Babbage is your assistant, not well, hers, really. It's great fun. And I imagine then, you were saying you've got 30 uh, teams coming down on Saturday. You must be doing OK. It must be uh, paying yeah. for itself and washing its own face. Yeah, it's great. It's really good. And uh, sort of... Even month on month, we see more and more people wanting to come and attend. So it's definitely growing industry and we're building up a, a big audience. And, yeah, it's, for us, it's about the next game, the next situation of maybe using more technology. Um, and we are, at the moment, looking for a bigger space in London. So it's not necessarily growing sort of um, geographically uh, throughout the country. It's more sort of growing, expanding in the same place and just offering a bigger place for you to come to. Well, maybe if you're listening and you, you like the idea of opening a franchise in one of the other cities here in the UK, then maybe they could get in touch with you via the website and you might be open to discuss that. Because I, I, I think you'd do great and I think it would be a lovely thing. Great. Might be awesome. And anyone else who wants to uh, offer any uh, technical help or people who maybe app designers or into AV, there's... um. Or VR, or VR. As, as I think what you I meant. Think, I think I meant VR. AV is audio-visual. I think you've already got that covered. But VR is a big new future for these things, I guess, is it? Yeah, it's a, well, VR is exciting. I think VR is quite difficult because VR is, by its own nature, a solo experience. And we you know, we try to provide team-based experiences for friends and family, etc., yeah. etc. So the question really is, how would you use VR in a setting which is you know, naturally cooperative? And I don't think anyone's solved that in VR yet. Well, I think what you could consider is AR. 
Mm, because augmented yes. reality, there is yep. a chance, and I believe that's what, for example, I believe without wishing to give out brand names, but I know that's the area that Microsoft are investing in rather than in VR, which the other yes. companies are going into. And they've got, I don't even know out yet, but they've got this thing called HoloLens they've been developing. Mm. And as I understand it, you could have, there are areas in the room where you would all see the same thing. Mm. So that might be an area that you could look into. I think, yeah, it would be. But in just, the future, I think also at the moment we're definitely an antidote to sort of tech and people with being on their phones or in front of computers. But um, definitely at some point, it'd be nice to start integrating that technology because I think it can really enhance the, the live game as well. Well, I want to say something here which is going to, I hope, impress you. In all, the, in all the escape rooms I've been in with my wife and family, we've escaped every single one. Well, that is impressive. How many have you done? About 20. That's, that's very no, good. No, about 12. But we went to two in Japan and that was tough because, let's face it, Japanese is a, almost a different language. <laughs> so that was tough. That was tough. And that was scary. Yeah. Also, I hear that um, um, games in Japan and so forth, they have much lower win rates. They're much more punishing. To, oh, yeah. to... Well, I think the one win, it was very clever. I've never seen it. I don't, know, I don't want to put this idea in your call because I don't want you to do this necessarily because I enjoy going to yours. But uh, you pay to get in. And the one that we were in, uh, if you want to, you can buy a bit of extra time at the end. <laughs> so yeah. you're allowed to buy an extra I 10 like minutes. Yeah, of course you like this. <laughs> so you can buy an extra 10 minutes, which almost everyone does. So I'll admit we did buy the we extra 10 minutes. We could do buying clues. We could do lots of stuff. Microtransactions within games. There, you see, that's no, that is not, I do not want to be part of this conversation any longer with you guys. I see (laughs) I've uh, awakened the sleeping beast of capitalism that was lurking at your feet. Uh, Great to have you here. Josh and Nick, I I very much, and I can heartily recommend the Taiwan experience. If you get a chance to go to Taiwan, either of the games, they were both fun, a really good night out and a really good kind of team, kind of group event, family or just friends, really great fun. So I hope you continue. I look forward to what you do next. Thanks for coming in. Great, thank you. You have been listening to the Radio 2 Art Show presented by me, Jonathan Ross. It's on every Thursday night between 10 and midnight on Radio 2.